0: The title of our message today is The Incredible Conversion and Transformation of Paul. I have a shorter title An Astonishing Transformation. The truth is, is that when we become Christians, it doesn't just get our name written in the Lamb's book of life. We don't just get our parking validated for heaven. When we become Christians, God does something inside of us and we become a new creation. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. Paul said, I forget the things that lie behind me And he didn't specify whether that's good or bad. But I press on towards the goal, the prize, the mark, where we we move forward in Christ. Whatever's behind us is behind us, good or bad. But we move on towards what God has for us in Christ. And God has chosen every single one of us. God has empowered us, those of you that are believers, God has empowered you to be light, to be a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. And even though you might not have as radical of a transformation as what Paul has, you still have a transformation. To be quite frank with you, there's no one that has the transformation that Paul has. He is the enemy of the church. He has been casting his lot to put people to death. He has compelled people to blaspheme. How do you compel a Christian to blaspheme? Thinking of that just sends sorrow to my heart of how he must have threatened them, how he must have threatened their family, or maybe even threatened to take their kids away. Who knows what he did so that a believer would finally go, fine, and he would blaspheme Jesus. He doesn't say that they didn't blaspheme. He says he compelled them to blaspheme. And God now calls him, and he not only becomes a, a Christian, but he becomes a leader in the church. And there's no one that has any more influence on Christianity in all of history other than Jesus than Paul. Paul writes thir- 13 of the New Testament uh, books. Some believe it is 14. 14. When I first became a a pastor in 1985, and I'm reading, I'm reading commentaries that are probably 10 and 15 years old. And I'm reading all these people talking about how Paul didn't write Ephesus and Paul didn't write Colossians and Paul didn't write Romans. Now there is a consensus of scholars that that all of the books, except there's still a question about two of them among scholars. But the rest of them have been clearly attributed to Paul. Paul was a leader. He made a huge um, uh, confirmation or, um, uh, contribution to the work of the church. And we're going to read about the rest of his uh, trans, uh, salvation in our study today. We saw a couple of weeks ago. Before I had skipped the Ethiopian eunuch, we started with Paul, went back, got the Ethiopian eunuch, came back and now we're at Paul. We saw that he was on the way to Damascus. He had been given letters by the chief priest to arrest people who were of the way in Damascus and to bring them back bound to face trials. And those trials would be of blasphemy in israel the sanhedrin could try people for blasphemy jesus was found guilty of blasphemy because jesus said that he was the son of god you remember Caiaphas said to jesus i compel you are you the son of god and he said it is as you say but from here on out you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory and given a kingdom forever and ever and they accused him of blasphemy That's what they're doing with these people today, by declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is God. Remember, Thomas, after not being there at first, fell down before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. To the Jewish leaders, this was blasphemy. And so Paul's on his way. Going there, he suddenly sees a bright light. It knocks him down. He's blinded, and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We pointed out that when Jesus uses two names, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon, Paul, Paul, that there's some compassion there. It's a rebuke, but there's compassion. Paul, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, who you've been persecuting. It's hard for you to to kick against the pricks or to kick against the goads. And then Paul says to him, What do you want me to do? That's the beginning of salvation. When you identify that Jesus is the Messiah as the Bible foretold and was foretold in the Old Testament, that he died on the cross as was foretold, as he rose from the dead, as was foretold, the Old Testament foretold his resurrection, then one of the first things that happens to you when you believe is that you say, what do you want me to do? That's the beginning of faith. That's the beginning of putting your trust in him. I don't know whether or not he was saved there, but I know he is in our text today. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 9. We're going to cover 10 through 31. This is a little longer section than we normally cover, but it covers his entire, you know, commitment to Christ. And you'll see this. It actually, this text will end up covering about 14 years. Um, but it's all about him coming to Christ and a lot of things to learn here. So verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus. Paul is told to go and, and he saw a vision of a man named Ananias. So now we're introduced to this guy. A certain disciple na- in Damascus named Ananias. Now there's three Ananiases in the Bible. This is the only time we will meet this one. He's a leader in Damascus. And to him... The Lord said in a vision, uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch, we saw that an angel spoke to him, and then the Holy Spirit speaks to him, and now the Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision. So there's various ways in which God was communicating during this time. And he said, here I am, Lord, in a vision. The Lord speaks to him, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. I think Ananias flinched when he heard the name Saul of Tarsus. Because we're going to learn. He knows well what's going on. Go to the street called Stray, to Judas's house, to Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, listen to what he says. Um, he says, uh, for behold, he is praying. By the way, that's interesting. Paul's praying. He's blind. God uses difficulties to get us to seek him. The Bible says God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How did he get Paul to diligently seek him? He knocked him down on the ground with a bright light, blinded him. And now Saul is in Damascus. It's been three days later and he's seeking God. He's praying. Sometimes God uses hardship to bring us to Christ. Sometimes people will be driven from Christ from that hardship. I've had people tell me when they're going through something difficult, If God's going to do this, I'm not following him. Now, do you see the inherent problem with that attitude? You're not surrendering your life to God. You're demanding God only do good things for you. If you're going to let me go through difficult times, I'm not following you. Now, that's not what they say, but that's what they mean. If God lets me go through this, I'm not following him. You're putting qualifications on God to surrender yourself to him. Instead of saying, Lord, whatever you have for me, Lord, if if I die tomorrow, I'll serve you today. Job said something very similar to that. If I die tomorrow, I'll serve you today. Doesn't matter to me, I'm going to serve you because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Paul has this difficulty, he's praying. He's had three days to kind of mull over what's happening when he said, what must I do? Go to Damascus, a man by Ananias is going to come to you. So in verse 12, and in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias. So God's still talking to Ananias at this point. He's saying that Saul, in a vision, saw a man named Ananias coming and putting his hands, hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who can call on his name. So he's objecting to what the Lord's saying, just saying, this guy is arresting people and you want me to go pray for him? And so God's response. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. We're going to come back to that. To bear my name to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That will happen during the life of Paul. He will bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles, before kings, and before Israel. But his main responsibility that God's gonna give him in his calling and choosing is that he's gonna be an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says this in the book of Galatians. I was chosen to go to the Gentiles. Peter was chosen to go to the Jews. Now, I don't know that we would've done that if we were in charge of things. Now, Katie barred the door that we would ever be in charge of heaven, of what God's doing. But he takes a very Jewish man, a Pharisee. None of the other disciples are Pharisees. But Paul is a Pharisee. And he has gone through training as a Pharisee. He knows Judaism inside and out. He is a scholar in his day. And so God says, I'm going to send him to, uh, I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. We would go, he's a scholar. He's Jewish. Let's send him to the Jews. That's what we would do. God oftentimes does things differently than we think that we should. Sometimes God takes someone who is highly gifted in music and sends them to be a pastor. And sometimes God takes someone who's highly gifted in another area and uses them differently. A few years ago, there was a number one best-selling book on Ulysses S. Grant. You may remember it. It was about that big and it was on, it was just called Grant. Great book, um, a, a history of Um, the the Civil War, slavery and Reconstruction after slavery and how that ended up failing and all of the, the Sam Crow laws and all the other things that came out of it. A lot of information. I really enjoyed it. But one of the things that stuck out to me was Ulysses S. Grant, as a young man, went to West Point. He was very good on a horse. I mean, very good on a horse. Uh, Did a lot of tricks on a horse and he went into the, he went and was trained in the Calvary. When it came time for his assignment, he was sure that he was going to be an officer in the Calvary. But they didn't do that. They put him in supplies, which was a huge disappointment for him. He was thinking, I'm going to be an officer leading men in the Calvary. And they're like, nope, your assignment is with supplies. I think the army enjoys putting people where they don't want to be. And that's exactly what they did to Ulysses S. Grant. And so for the first part of his career, until he got kicked out, because they booted him out of it, probably because he was in supplies and not in the cavalry, he learned how to move supplies around. That was his job. He was put in different places, move supplies around. Now the Civil War starts, General, the Union General after Union General after Union General fail. Ulysses S. Grant is, is made an officer again. He had been not dishonorously dis, dishonorably discharged, but he had been made to resign. It was like you either resign or we're kicking you out. And he, was, he had a problem with alcohol. He was drunk. And um, they, they kicked him out. So they brought him back in as an officer in the Civil War. And he won the first battle. Then he won the next battle. And Lincoln started looking and going, the only guy winning is Ulysses S. Grant. And so he put him more and more charge over things. And he put him over a certain area where they won the battle of the Hudson, maybe. there's just a particular battle that he won. And then he won. Then he became the, the, the general over the entire army. And he defeated the southern army, sometimes being outnumbered with men and sometimes having poorer ground. He defeated them. The reason he did? because he could move supplies. He knew how to move troops and supplies into place. Had he never been trained in supplies, he would have never have been able to be the effective general that he was. He was able to get extra weapons, ammunition, food, clothing, you need all of those things when you're marching through swamps and you're going through stuff. And so, what well, sometimes what we think is a drag like Grant, who thought when he, was, uh, when he was assigned to supplies, this is horrible, you know, wanted to quit. But there is something else in mind. And God has something else in mind. And we need to be willing to say, what do you want me to do, God? Not what do I want from you? But I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. Now he also says to him, he then goes on to say to him, um, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now he's chosen by God. And I want you to notice the chosen. I said we would get back to that. For God, God says, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. There's a lot of confusion that people have about what being chosen means. Many are called, meaning God knocks on the hearts of many people's doors, gives people a chance to come and give their lives to him. But few are chosen. Once you respond to God and you surrender your life to him, he chooses you to bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. God's got a purpose, a reason for all of you. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you would go out and appointed you, that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Not only has he chosen you and appointed you, but he equipped you. He gives you the Father, giving you things for that which you have been chosen for. Understanding this whole idea, um, Jesus says, well, in John 6, 66 through 71, there's a ton of people following Jesus. It's at the peak of his popularity. Many people are following him. He realizes that people are following him not because they want to give their lives to him, but because of the miracles that he's doing and the food that he's making. Some of them even ask him, what what, what are we going to have for dinner? Now, I'm paraphrasing. You can go eat it yourself. That's basically what it is. Why don't you give us food again like you did over here? And so Jesus starts to say difficult things to them. He's thinning the ranks on purpose. And it says in John 6, 66 through 71, from that time, many disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you? He said that Peter Paul was a chosen vessel. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is the devil. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, in whom he would betray him, being one of the twelve. So being chosen to do the work that God calls you to do doesn't confirm that you are a genuine Christian. When you have a call on your life, Paul said this, I beat my body daily, lest after I preach the gospel, I might be disqualified. Paul knew that he was chosen by God, but he could be disqualified. Judas was chosen, had free will, made choices and was disqualified. Now, I know the Bible foretold the part that that Judas would play, and many people talk about predestination and that Judas didn't have any choices, but God knows the choices that we make. God foreknows them, He, he knows everything. And the Bible says, whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God knows when we're serious about following him and we really want to follow him, that he predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son. So we have a choosing as well. We have all been given gifts that we would minister to one another. Those of you here who are genuine Christians. God empowers you to do the work that God's called you to do. And it might not be what you want. It might not be what you think. You might think, well, I got this skill. And God's like, yeah, but I'm going to do something else with you. And sometimes it's God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That, that, I've often thought that's my role. People go, God uses him. God can use anybody. Amen. And uh, so he goes on to say to him then, in verse 17, and Ananias went. So after hearing that God has chosen him and has many things for him to suffer, by the way, and I want to take a moment to talk about that for just a minute, many things for us to suffer. The prosperity movement teaches that if you have enough faith and you come to Christ, then you're going to be rich and you're never going to be sick and you're never going to face any difficulties. Surprisingly, that's a popular message in America today. And I mock, right, surprisingly. People hear that and they go, I like it. I remember the first time I was exposed to the prosperity doctrine. I was 18, 19 years old. They, in those days, they put a satellite out beside our church that was the size of a, I don't know, 747. Wasn't that big, but it was big. And they brought in a series on the faith movement, on on the prosperity movement. And I, I listened to it and I thought, this is pretty amazing. I want to be rich and God wants me rich. I, I want a Corvette, God wants me to have a Corvette. This is amazing, I, I never heard this before. But then something in my heart really spoke to me. I went home and I looked up 1 uh, Excuse me, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter six, which says, if anybody teaches godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Hey, God, uh, the Bible says those who are rich tell them not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but be willing to share. So it's not that everybody's going to be impoverished. But listen to the kind of things Paul suffered. This is him talking about his suffering. This does not fit in the prosperity movement. Okay, Paul couldn't be in it. Listen to what he says. He's talking about false teachers that are telling people they have to keep the law. They were legalists. He's talking against them here in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 23 through 28. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. So he's going to start boasting about his infirmities. And what a foolish thing, you know? I'm going to boast about how much I've been hurt. That's what Paul's going to do. So he says, I speak as a fool and am more in labors and more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, in deaths often, From the Jews, five times I have received 40 stripes minus one. That's being scourged. Three times I have been beaten with rods. They would lay you down on your stomach, stretch out your hands and legs and beat you with rods. This was a public flogging. Once I was stoned, we're going to get to that in Lystra, where they think he's dead and drag him outside of the city. Paul recovers and goes back in the city. Now, if I'm stoned in a city and they drag me out and I recover, I'm leaving the city. He goes back in the city. Well, we'll get to that. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. A night and a day he was, he was stranded in the water. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in cities, in perils in wilderness, in perils at the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides all the things that come upon me, my deep concern for all the churches. So Paul says, on top of that, I've got this stress about what's going on within the churches. Now, as I said, that guy's not going to fit in well with the prosperity movement. They're going to say to him, you don't have enough faith, brother. you got all these problems happening to you. But God had chosen him to suffer. Now, Paul's a unique case. I get it. Not everyone suffers the way that Paul does, but there are those who do. And whether God chooses us to suffer or to not suffer, that's up to God. God does it as he sees fit. So then verse 17, Ananias went um, his way and entered the house. Ananias hears God's got a plan for Paul to suffer. He goes and enters the house and he lays hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Now, remember, this guy has arrested people, compelled them to blaspheme, cast lots for Christians to die. I wonder if when he laid hands on him, he didn't say, Brother Saul? Like, is this a question? Are you, a bro- are you my brother? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight and he arose and was baptized. This is his salvation. You remember last week when we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, that the Ethiopian eunuch came to water and said to Philip, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe nothing. So the only thing that keeps you from being baptized is believing. You believe and then you are baptized. I was confirmed in the Methodist Church. I was baptized as an infant in the Methodist Church. And when I gave my life to Christ, I was compelled to be baptized. Now, I think a lot of people don't get baptized and maybe for several reasons. A lot of Christians don't. It kind of surprises me how many Christians don't get baptized. Remember, Jesus said, go out into all nations, make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's one of the reasons that I think they don't. Because like me, you were baptized as a child. You may have been confirmed into the Lutheran Church. You may have been baptized by the Catholic Church. So you may have been baptized as a child. So then you are born again, and you feel like, well, I've been baptized. And so I talk to a lot of people when I'm baptizing them. How long have you been a Christian? Uh, About 40 years ago. And I always have a little joke, and you're being baptized now. I'm not being condescending because I don't want to do that. I think it's fantastic that after all those years they are being baptized. But I think that we all need to be baptized because something happens at baptism. Colossians 2, verse 12, says we are baptized into his death and, and into his resurrection. So when we are baptized, we are identifying with the death of Christ, and that is something. People think, well, baptism is just a sign that I've I made a commitment to Christ, and I buried and I' of living. No, it's something. You're identifying with Christ's burial. You're identifying with his resurrection. That's something God wants for you to have. And so I just encourage you one more time. if you haven't been baptized, then go ahead and do it. It's a wonderful moment. We have a baptism coming up in September. I don't know the exact date. We'll be at Highland Vista Pool Park. We baptized about 60 people last month. Um, and we'll, our, our desire is just to see you doing what you, what, what you need to do, what Jesus said for us to go out and do. And so he's baptized. Now this is this other he's believed and he's baptized. Now, now Paul's saved. Now he's no longer an enemy of the church, but he's part of the church. Verse 19, what happens? So when he had received food and was strengthened, Then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. So he spends time, first of all, talking to the disciples in Damascus about what Christianity is, learning the basics of Christianity. It says immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. He could do this because he knew all of the Old Testament passages that spoke of Jesus being the Christ. He had a head start on most of us. When we become a Christian, we're kind of like, you know, ground zero. We're kind of like, I, I, don't, I don't know much. But then as you grow in Christ, you learn more, you are able to defend your faith. Now, Pete could go out immediately and do this. I, um, in, my, in my 30s, I started playing racquetball. I had played tennis before, but I'd never played racquetball. And racquetball is a completely different animal. Racquetball is the only sport that you can hit the racquetball and be hit in the back of the head by the racquetball at the same time. It's like, whack! It's the only thing that can happen. And when I started in my 30s, OK, and I was playing against a guy that was in his late 70s and he would whip me. I, this guy, he can, he can barely move and he, eh, eh, and he was killing me. And I'm in there, you know, wham, wham. And he's just, he's just beating me. Later on, I learned you got to control the center of the court. I learned there was like any other sport, there are certain things you have to do in time. Paul had a head start on that. We don't. When um, Kanye West became a Christian, almost immediately people pushed him out to begin to do things. He began to travel the nation and put on these Sunday morning services, and then all of a sudden he starts talking anti-Semitic stuff, and we start to, and he changes his name to Yay, whatever that's all about, and we realize maybe we shouldn't push people too quickly out to preach the gospel. Paul's unique in that he was able to go into the synagogues right away because he knows the Old Testament so well, he could connect the dots early. I realize that most of you don't know who B.J. Thomas is, but some of you who are older, you know who B.J. Thomas is. B.J. Thomas put out an album after he got saved called Home Where I Belong. The, The key song on that was a great song. It had a line in it that went, One day I'll be sleeping when death knocks on my door and I'll awake to find that I'm not homesick anymore but I'll be home, I'll be home where I belong. I remember being in my early 20s hearing that song and being brought to tears by it, it was just moving. Well, he said he wants his fans back and he walked away from Christ. And I just wonder if they aren't pushed too quickly out. No, we, now you're a Christian, let's get you out there. People are gonna be, I I think a beat of, um, of, uh, uh, you gotta serve somebody, Bob Dylan, God, I think of Bob Dylan, same thing. They pushed him out quickly. And then he ends up walking away. So when I hear that someone becomes a Christian, I'm like, please, Lord, let them take time to really allow them to get rooted and grounded in it. Now he's going to get rooted and grounded. Verse 20 says, immediately he preached the synagogue, Christ in the synagogues, that he was the son of God. Then all who heard him were amazed. Uh, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? Notice that warning. Is this not the one who destroyed those? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confronted the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that he was the Christ. Notice he proved to the Jews that he was the Christ. He used the Old Testament to give them evidence. We're not talking about blind faith. There is no such thing as blind faith in Christianity. We have evidence and we choose to believe the evidence that is given. And we have to see the evidence and learn it and grow in it. I encourage you, um, there's a, a book by Lee Strobel, and I hope I haven't talked about this in this service. Sometimes I forget what I've talked about in one service. Have I talked about Lee Strobel yet? All right. So Lee Strobel was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. His wife became a Christian. He got annoyed, decided to go out and and investigate it, use his journalistic skills to investigate it. When he looked at the evidence that was given, he became a Christian. He wrote a book called A Case for Christ. I encourage you. If you don't know what the evidence is, that's a good place to start. There are many other places. I give you guys other recommendations of books to find the evidence for the gospel. There's a lot of them, but this is a good one. A Case for Christ and A Case for Faith are two books that he wrote. You could get them in audio form. They're not long reads. You could also order the real book, like like we used to, from Amazon. You could actually go through the pages and read them, underline it and mark it up. But you're gonna get the evidence there. It's a way for you to help get it. I try to add in as much evidence as I can in my messages, but we're going through the scriptures, and it's not always—it's um, not always concentrated. When you get a book like *The Case for Christ* or *A Case for Faith*, it's concentrated. You can own these things. You can see the evidence clearly. And if you've got doubts and you're wondering whether or not Jesus is really true, whether he really came, whether he rose from the dead, this is the thing for you to do. Answer those doubts. I'm of the opinion that doubts are given to you so that you will dig in and find out about it. Not so you'll just w- w- kind of waddle in your da- or, or mire in the mud of your doubts. But so you go, you know, what? I'm going to find out because I don't want to follow something that's not true. And I'm right there with you. I don't, I don't want to spend my life doing something that's not true. So I spent time diving into the evidence that was there. Notice, he proved Jesus was the Christ, is what it says. Uh, and then it goes on to say, but there, in this verse 24, but their, but their plot became known to Saul, well, let's go back one, 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So everywhere he went, it seems like people wanted to kill Paul. He wanted to kill people when he was going against the church and now they want to kill him. And, and it says in verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gate day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So he has to escape, lest the same thing that he did befalls him and his life is destroyed. Now in Galatians, later on in the book of Acts, he says he went to Arabia for three years. Luke doesn't give us that information here in this account. But he goes to Arabia. When he goes to Arabia, he's now seeking God. He's pouring into the Old Testament. Remember, they don't have the New Testament. Paul's going to write a lot of the New Testament. So he's pouring into the Old Testament. He's looking over all of these evidences. No wonder he's able to defend himself so much when he comes back. Then we're told he comes back to Damascus, reconnects with his friends in Damascus, and then he goes to Jerusalem. So the next thing we read here is they let him down in a large basket and when Saul had come to Jerusalem. Now people will say, well, there's a discrepancy there. It says Paul went immediately to Jerusalem. No, it doesn't. It just leaves out the three years. So for for different reasons, for various things, people can leave things out from an account. It doesn't make it contradictory. That's what you got to look for. Is it contradictory or is something just left out of it? So the three years are left out here. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Peter, James and John were like, no, no, no. Paul's like knocking at the door. They're like, hide. they just won't let him around. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. So Barnabas goes and sees Paul. Barnabas, we've, we've learned from, seen him before. He's known as the son of encouragement. He takes a risk. Hey, if Paul's a spy at this point, Barnabas' life is going to be taken from him. But Barnabas goes in and meets with them. And then Barnabas comes back and says, I- I've spent time with Paul and I want to bring him before you guys. So Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and out. Now, in Galatians, he says, when I was with the brethren in Jerusalem, I'm going to paraphrase this, but you can get this in Galatians. He says, I, ha- I needed to know whether what I was preaching was the same as them. Because if what I was preaching was different than the apostles who had been with Jesus for a significant period of time, I knew that I would be wrong. So he confirmed it. And then he says this, they added nothing to me. So Paul had it right by the time he had spent with the Damascus brethren. And then in the Arabian Desert, and now coming back, what Paul was preaching is what they were preaching as well. And then it says, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. So now he goes out and picks a fight with the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the ones that had stoned. if you remember that, right? There were Hellenistic Jews. These were more, these were Jews who, who embraced the Greek culture. They were called Hellenists. Then there were Hebraic Jews who rejected the Greek culture, and they kept in the, 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 the Jewish culture. And so he goes and finds the Hellenists, and he starts picking fights with them. But they attempted to kill him, just like they did Stephen. They attempted to kill him. So again, here he is again, three years later, they want to kill him again. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. That's where he was from. And then, now Paul's gone, Right? And it's like this great sigh of relief all around Jerusalem. (gasps) He's not attacking the church. He's not with the church. He's gone. Verse 31. Then the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. They needed a time of rest after having all this turmoil for the first three years. Now, here's the kicker. Paul is in in Tarsus for 10 years. We don't hear about Paul for 10 years. It isn't until Barnabas goes to Antioch and and, and a church breaks out in Antioch and he goes, I need someone who knows the Bible. I need someone who can help me. And it says he goes Saul hunting and finds him in Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch. And that's where Paul re-engages with the church. Now, this is my last point, and we're going to close up. But think about that. God's going to use Paul. There's no one used greater other than Jesus in the church than Paul. But God puts him on a shelf for 10 years. You ever feel like God puts you on a shelf? You ever feel like God kind of says, I'm not going to use you for a while? It's so God can do whatever God's planning to do with you. Paul needed that. Maybe because the... The, the work that Paul would do would be so great he needed to be humble he couldn't come out of the shoots and start doing great things for God his head would be so big God couldn't use him anymore but Paul even said later on I have a thorn in my flesh that has been given to me to humble me because of the greatness of the work that I've been called to so he knew that God was even even um even um humbling him then now it reminds me of psalm chapter 1 Which says that if you meditate on the word of God day and night, you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and you will bring forth fruit in its season. Doesn't mean you always bring forth fruit in its season. But isn't it just interesting that God prepared Paul three years in the Arabian desert, 10 years in Tarsus, this huge gap that we don't ever think about. In our mind, he gets saved and he gets cooking and starts doing what he does. But God's like, there has to be this time in his life to do those things. Now, three things in closing. Number one, don't think that trials, difficulties, and sufferings that you face mean God is not, wor- is not working within you. We often think, I'm going through difficulties. God's not working. God doesn't just work through miracles. That's the prosperity movement. That's a whole different thing. And that's unmassively unbiblical. Number two, God has chosen you. Or well, let's put it this way. God has called you chosen you and gifted you to do the work he's called you to do. It might not be the work you think you're best suited for, but God has a plan and a purpose for your life, something for you to do. Finally, be patient. There may be gaps for learning and maturity between the time that God calls you and chooses you and God actually begins to use you. Galatians comes to mind. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not grow weary. Stand with me and pray, would you? Father, we want to thank you as we can take time to look at this amazing transformation of, of Paul. And remember that it wasn't something that happened overnight. That, yes, he had a lot. He had a head start on, on what we're, from where we were but you used him, and Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray for those who are here today that have never made a commitment to you, who have chosen to live their lives for themselves up to this point, and I pray that they would have boldness to give their lives to you in a new, fresh way. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.